Okay, welcome to another one of these uh, short, less than half hour, but probably more than 10 minutes, Cood Street podcast. This is Gary Wolf, and today I am delighted to be able to talk to a uh, writer, professor, uh, Strange Horizons founder, and I guess most recently cookbook author, Marianne Mohanraj. Thanks so, for having me. Well, how, how, how are you doing with the cookbook? I've seen friends of mine on, on Twitter trying out your recipes for Sri Lankan things. Um, cookbook's going pretty well. I, I, I mean, it's sort of mixed, right? Because we launched at FogCon on, I think it was March 6th. Mm-hmm. And that was my last trip pre-pandemic. I almost, you know, I thought about not going because I was starting to get concerned at that point, but I was guest of honor. So I didn't, you know, right. really, you know, I really didn't want to, to cancel. And, um, Nisi Shaw was my co-guest of honor and she had to cancel because she had some health concerns. So, uh, yeah. Um, so I went and I'm glad I went, but then, uh, came back and I was supposed to go to ICFA and pretty quickly I just sort of canceled everything. We had a whole book tour planned. Ben Rosenbaum and I, uh, were both launching. So we were, we had booked, you know, sort of, we were going to drive a uh, road trip across America and like we had library visits and bookstore visits that we'd lined up and events in Chicago and we just ended up canceling everything. Um, so that was strange. Uh, we'd gotten some early press for the cookbook, mm-hmm. which was great. And so, you know, Ingram and Amazon did put in orders. Publishers Weekly gave us a, a starred review. So I just got my first royalty check. So, you know, that's great. And it's that's I think great. we're going to end up doing a relaunch, I think, is the plan. Um, I'm not quite sure when. You know, we keep – initially I was like, oh, yeah, definitely by next March we'll be able to – we'll do it a year afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm like, I don't know, given how America's handled this so far, I'm, I'm not sure I can confidently plan for being able to road trip in March. So Every, Everybody I've talked to have been talking about that. I mean, I, we, I was in the same position you were of waiting until the last minute until ICFA canceled and then waiting on New Zealand because I was going to. And I felt this odd sense of gratitude when they canceled. So I didn't have to make this horrible decision. Yeah, I think I, I, I canceled earlier because I think it became sort of clear that probably they were waiting so yeah. that the hotels wouldn't sting them on their contracts right so um so once once I realized that was what was probably happening behind the scenes I was like oh well they are going to cancel so I might as well just go ahead at this point right so, and but who knows about next March at this point really yeah no idea so um, I, 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 was, I was talking to my friend well Jonathan the co-host on the podcast and he's planning on going to, he's tentatively planning on going to Montreal next fall. And those of us here in the States have to wonder if Canada will even let us in by then. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not at all sure. You know, it may have to be like, go two weeks early in quarantine for two in weeks. Quarantine and, yeah, then exactly. you'll be allowed to attend the convention. Right. So um, I'm not sure I would. I mean, not that I think Canada is also still struggling a bit. So, uh, yeah, it's yeah, tricky. On the plus side, the virtual conventions have been. Um, really better than I expected. So I've now gone to six of them this summer wow. and I'm attending two more this weekend and um, FutureCon and uh, the Untitled Convention for um, Plurality University. And the the just in terms of international participation, um, the costs coming way down because you don't have the travel costs. So mm-hmm. a lot more people can afford to attend. Often the convention registration is 
$10 instead of $200. Um, and then the, and then um, I'm seeing people who are disabled who are like, this is the first time I've been able to participate because I mm-hmm. can't go to these cons. So I'm, I'm hoping that whatever comes out of this on the other end, we're going to see much more robust virtual programming, even for the in-person conventions. I think, I because think that's absolutely true. Yeah. It's been terrific, and I, I you know, but I, I hope we take advantage, like lessons learned, right? Um, well, let me get to the questions that we always ask on these short podcasts, and that is, it's been six months now. This is amazing. Uh, yeah. Whole summer has come and gone. Are you able to get any reading done? And if so, what kind of reading do you prefer to do in at the end of the world? Yeah, you know, so when all this came down in March, I. I kind of went into crisis mode for a month or two. You know, I was a professor teaching right. classes. I I took my classes online before the university told me I was allowed to, um, which I was a little nervous about, but I was pretty sure it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm also serve on the library board. So as an elected official, we had to make decisions about are we closing the library at what point? And I was also kind of looking around and thinking, well, people are going to be out of work because um so we we're going to need a mutual aid society so right. i was i i just kind of had this the first month after covid really april and march and april i was intensely working just you know setting up the mutual aid society right. partnering with other people locally to do that luckily other people have picked it up and run with it so now i i do very little but the it was just it was overwhelming and um my husband took over taking care of the kids and dinners and the house and I just put my head down and tried to work. Um, also, I have a lot of family who are in healthcare. My sisters are doctors. My dad's a doctor. Uh-huh. My friend, and so I was um, hearing from them, and I think I had a, a better sense of how bad things were than mm. most people around me at that, you know, back in those early days. So, and sewing masks and trying to convince people that yes, masks are going to be useful, and you know, <laughs> I, you know, you know, I ended up. You know, dusting off my sewing machine, uh, which broke, buying another one, and then like obsessively sewing masks to donate to healthcare huh. workers because we were so short of PPE. Making a video on how do you do this, etc. And so <laughs> I'm like, there was no reading in March. There was no <laughs> reading in April. There was no time to read. Um, and I think it was only May. The semester ended, and I caught my breath a little bit and sort of said, "Okay, I I have to go back to my life. I have to go yeah. back to um, normal, whatever that looks like." And for me, the summers are reading and writing time, typically as an academic. And so, you know, so I I did. I like pretty deliberately is like I'm gonna start reading. I'm gonna start writing. And I, I have to put the world aside for a while. And and we did hardcore sheltering in place. My husband Kevin is pretty conservative about that, so mm-hmm. we re- we we pretty much we rarely saw anyone. <laughs> it was just us in our house and me going to the back garden to my writing shed, um, which is where I am right now. And I bought a stack of uh, food books. So that's to answer your question. I. I was reading a lot of memoirs around food. Uh, I read A Year in Provence. I read um, M.K. Fisher's wonderful How to Cook a Wolf, um, which is, I would recommend to anyone, it's a a very funny Depression-era memoir with a lot of tips for, you know, how do you you stretch your meals when when there are shortages or when money is tight. Um, 
with a just great acerbic wit. Um, I read the um, Best American um, Food Writing. I'm not quite sure if that's the title. Something like that, edited by Roxane Gay, who's one of my favorite contemporary writers, food people, mm-hmm. conversationalists. I love her podcast, Home Cooking. Um, it's very funny, and she's super warm. She's got a TV show and a cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which are brilliant. And her her curating of this anthology was so impressive to me. It was, I think when you people think of food writing, they often think like, oh, it's going to be someone sort of luxuriating in the, the scent of coffee or whatever, right? Like lots of poetic right. language. And that is not what she gave us. <laughs> it, was, it was lots of political pieces, lots of, you know, here's a piece on the impact of irrigation being controlled by this one family that's very wealthy on the, you know, sort of fruit in California, right? It was really a a kingdom of dirt, I want to say, is the title of that essay. Um, just And then deep dives into, you know, I don't know, heirloom beans. And again, like, with a focus on the economics, the class issues, the... There, there's so much um, interesting political um, ideas kind of uh, that she laid bare in, in that collection. Yeah, I, had, I had a friend teaching it uh, before I retired who was in the su- sustainability program. Mm-hmm. We have a, Roosevelt had a program in sustainability studies. And some, I didn't know if he ever got taught, but he was teaching a course simply called the banana. And mm-hmm. it, it just looked at all the politics going all the way back to the United Fruit Company. And, and you can bring in all kinds of music and... and uh, Pablo Neruda's poetry and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. It's amazing how much food just opens out into every other uh, area. I have a colleague at UAC, Anna Guevara, who's a sociologist, and she does her a course through food ethnography, um, which is very popular with the students. It's a great class, and she actually has them cook in a Hull House kitchen, and they eat together and talk about the history, and it's, I don't know, it's terrific. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliant way in, and I'm at Pluralde University, we're we're doing sort of themed issues and themed projects, and the like. The most recent one was on kind of like the future of corporations, but I think one of the ones for 2021 is going to be about the future of food, and I'm I'm really curious to see where people take that. Um, you know whether it's, you know like I, I think it's sort of an under underdeveloped area in science fiction, so be be great to see more work in that. It, it's interesting. There are a, a number of I've seen a number of mystery anthologies about food, usually involving poisons of one sort or another. That's right. Uh, but, but but I mean, there's also even Robert Parker's Spencer novels, because Spencer would just whip something up from the kitchen. They all had recipes in. Mm. And, uh, there were a couple of British writers whose names I can't remember, who uh, a lot of stuff was organized around food writing. So I, I, I think you're right. It's science fiction has fallen behind that. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, partly maybe it comes from the traditional science fiction is the realm of techies, is the realm of, um, you know, rocket scientists and so on. You know, in in what that and that biography that Alec Nevela Lee did for Astounding, mm-hmm. um, I think that was one of the things he talks about in that. It's a great book. Uh, I know you've read it, but oh, yeah. for anyone else listening, uh, it's a great book. And one of the things he talks about is that, you know, during the war, these uh, Asimov, et cetera, these Campbell, these authors really thought they were sort of the, the bright young men who would who would save the world with science and, you know, whether it's psychohistory or whatever else. And 
you know, American science fiction, I think, still has a lot of that. And and it's it's funny, just just before recording this, I was attending this um, uh, future future. Sorry, I'm trying to remember what the name of this panel, this convention is future SF that's happening right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I was listening to a panel of people from Eastern Europe um, talking about science fiction uh, there. And the man from Croatia was ranting a little bit <laughs> about, <laughs> about how, you know, science fiction should be the prom- province of scientists and those people should be reading it and writing it. And um, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I, he was just frustrated that it wasn't more popular, I think, in his, in that, among that population. Right. His home country. But I, you know, I do think it's a little dangerous to think about, like, Science fiction is the the province of science scientists, right? I mean, you understand why why that happened, but food is. I think, is, I think yeah. so. I think also when you're talking about Eastern European, and I just, as a matter of fact, I just got a, a collection of uh, Croatian science fiction stories, and I wonder if it's the same author that was in your uh, discussion. But uh, but the sense I got, even going back to uh, reading uh, Lem, and one year the uh, Science Fiction Research Association actually met in Poland. And I think the sense is they're starting later, and if, if you start developing a science fiction culture later, you start developing it at an earlier stage. So they might be at the stage now in, in Eastern Europe that that people like Heinlein and Asimov thought they were at in the 40s here. Right. No, and I, I think, you know, I was, a, I was a juror for the Salam Award, which is given for Pakistani science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really struck me reading through the stories, and there were many wonderful stories they felt to me like the stories I read in Asimov's back in the 1980s, right? That was, mm-hmm. like, you know, something about the subject matter and the concerns, even the writing style was very reminiscent. And it makes me wonder, like, well, what science fiction texts are typically available to people in Pakistan right now? I know from talking to um, science fiction writer friends in Sri Lanka that that's, that's been a real barrier, right? That one of them, Yudanjaya Vidaratna, who's you know a very up-and-coming young Nebula-nominated science fiction writer from Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. He and I were talking, and you know he had never read Delaney because there hadn't been any Delaney on the shelves in the bookstores in Colombo. And I was like, oh my god, right? Let me mm-hmm. let me make sure I'm going to give you a bunch of recommendations, right? And he will devour them. But um, so yeah, that's this, anyway, that, this that, is that's, an issue that yeah, it's, a little it's bit an issue that way, but it's. Uh, you know, ebooks will help, but they have to know about them, right? And I think it's a kind of bringing them into the conversation, uh, bringing people from all these countries into the conversation, so that we can recommend things to them. Um, Absolutely. You know, because it, it was a common theme in the. Uh, I've read a bunch of international anthologies in the last year. Uh, from there was one of South Asian science fiction, although I don't think Sri Lanka was included in that one. Uh, You're talking about the Glance book. I have the issues. Book. Yes, I, I'm sure you do. But we, uh, I, I sent them a nasty note, so uh, <laughs> they don't they don't have to include me. But they should have. If you're going to say this is the first anthology of South Asian science fiction, you you should make sure every country is represented. They, there but they, 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 they did address that in the introduction. I don't think there was any Nepalese science fiction in it either. Uh, but the point I was going to make is that the introduction to that and the introduction to a book of Israeli science fiction and a book of Korean science fiction pretty much all said 
the same thing you said, that the science fiction which was available for these writers was basically classic American science fiction from 40 and 50 years ago. Yeah. And so they probably didn't see Delaney and Russ. They might have seen Le Guin. Uh, but, uh, but by and large, you write science fiction based on the science fiction that you have access to. Right. So, I mean, but now with the Internet, hopefully they're... I, I, I would expect that they will have an accelerated course now, right? They're, they will, I would hope so. They won't have to go through 50 years. They can progress by leaps and bounds, reading the best of what there's been in that time, um, which is which is very promising. And, and I guess what I was meant to say originally about expecting science fiction to be written, written by scientists is that, you know, traditionally food and cooking and all of that has been part of the domestic realm. And so mm-hmm. if all science fiction is written by male scientists back in the day, um, then it's it's not it's understandable that there would not be a lot of science fiction around food. Uh, but also well, let's, get, uh, let's, let's get to the, the last question, which is what what you have out now and what what we can expect from you. And and I know you've got the, the cookbook out now, which you probably should describe a little bit, because it seems to me. Not that I know how to cook anything, but mm-hmm. looking at, looking at it, it looked like these were manageable Sri Lankan recipes. Is that a fair manageable to a Western novice? I think so. There, I mean, it's it is a Sri Lankan American cookbook. It's it's really geared towards Americans and, uh-huh. and Westerners in general. And it's um, sort of my cooking starts with the what my mother was cooking, which she had to make a lot of adaptations when she brought us to Connecticut. She and my yeah. dad to Connecticut. So um, it's certainly not, you know, authentic Sri Lankan cuisine of the kind you would get if you were there. It's very similar. Um, and I, I certainly, but I explain a lot because I'm expecting whether I'm speaking to Westerners or speaking to the next generation of my kids and other, other kids like them, that they won't have familiarity and that I will need to, that they'll need to be kind of have their hand held through it. So that's, mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a good kind of comprehensive intro to South Sri Lankan food. Um, it's titled A Feast of Serendib. Serendib is one of the old names for Sri Lanka, and it's where we get the word serendipity, because uh-huh. um, Sir Horace Walpole wrote a short story about the three princes of Serendib that was about, you know, coming and finding. It's, it's a fictional Word. Oh, Horace Walpole was responsible for that word? Or? Yeah, he wrote a story. So Serendib was one of the old names of Sri Lanka. He wrote a yeah. story about the three princes of Serendib, and they're foolish young men, but they find something wonderful they weren't expecting, and that's where we get the word serendipity. Um, right. But, but sorry, <laughs> like it went off on the sidetrack. But the cookbook is aimed at, um, yeah, it's aimed at people who are new to this, and if you love it and want to do more there's many other books you could you could go into from that point going forward it's it's a good intro point i think great to hear that and we're over our time as i knew we would be Uh, we didn't talk about science fiction much well we did we talked about we did we talked about science fiction we talked we said important things about science fiction which people need to know and important things about food but uh again this has been a good street podcast for more than 10 minutes uh, with Marianne Mohan Raj, and thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Gary. Take care. Okay.